My name is Justin, and I am a son of God and an addict and the host of the RICO 12 Speaker Meeting Podcast. And thanks to my God, the steps, and the fellowship of other addicts, I am living in the relative happy, joyous, and free that is promised to those living in recovery and have been very active in the rooms of recovery since September of 2013. Welcome to RICO 12. We are an organization with the mission of learning and sharing the similarities of addiction of all kinds and gaining and sharing tools and hope from others who are walking a similar path. We come together from all places, faiths, and backgrounds to gain tools and hope from others who are walking a similar path. Speakers from our past meetings have represented many fellowships and identify with addictions which, with such variety as alcoholism, drugs, food, sex, gambling, theft, codependency, and all of the Anon groups. We invite recovering addicts with at least one year sobriety and who are actively working their recovery in their respective fellowships to share their experience, strength, and hope on a live Zoom webinar each Friday at noon central time for 20 to 25 minutes. Then we, the live audience, get the opportunity to ask questions of that speaker for another 20 to 25 minutes. If you are hearing this meeting in recorded podcast form and would like to participate as a live audience member in the future, please go to rico12.com, that's R-E-C-O-1-2.com, to learn more and submit your email address there to receive week weekly invitations. RICO 12 is a self-supporting service, and we appreciate your help in keeping us working our 12th step in this manner. We gratefully accept contributions. I'll put a link to that in the chat of the live meeting, as well as in the show notes of the podcast if you would like to contribute. This last week, we received several reviews on, in, in Apple Podcasts, and thank you all so much for sharing your experience so that others can gain awareness of RICO 12 and what we are striving to do in sharing this message with the person who still suffers. Uh, Dan 3939 shared the following in their review. RICO 12 has brought peace and serenity to my life as I have had the chance to listen to its episodes. The one with Father Bill W. on two-way prayer was especially enlightening for me. But I love knowing that I can turn to any of these podcasts when I have some time and when I need to connect with my higher power. Thank you, Dan3939. Uh, we look forward each week to receiving from the light reflected from our speakers. That light inspires hope, meaning, worth, and growth in us, the listening audience. Now, let's introduce our guest speaker for today, Al N., whose chosen topic is, What Happens When the Formal Work Is Done? And here's a little bit about Al in his own words. He says, I came into AA in January and February of 1974 and have been sober since. I came into recovery from compulsive sexual behavior in both SA and SAA at the same time in October of 1994. After three years, I took a sabbatical to do some field research, relapse, but have been sober since January 15, 1998. After weighing the pros and cons of my personal needs, SAA is the program that fit best for me and is my home program. I currently attend the ARP program for maintenance, and I sponsor extensively and make many contributions at the international level. Al, the floor is yours. Take it away. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Justin. And good morning or afternoon, depending on where you are. But uh, welcome to all of you 12-steppers uh, out there. This morning, I um, rather than tell you a whole lot of war stories about my life, I thought I would... Uh, take the approach of talking a little bit about what happens afterward and uh, what a recovery looks like maybe when we're a couple of years down the road. Uh, perhaps some of you are working with uh, sponsees who are a couple of, uh, of years down the road and you kind of wonder, um, now they're abstinent from whatever their, their choice is, uh, what does life look like for them? So. I have some questions today, and they're, they're just kind of gray matter probes to 
uh, have you think about uh, exactly what goes on when we're a ways down the road in our recovery, things that will help us to stay in recovery and to stay sober. So let me begin with, uh, with the first question. Are you a possibility thinker? Do you think about possibilities in your daily life, in your recovery? Um, some years ago, I, I listened to uh, Dr. Robert Schuler from the Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove, California, talk about being a possibility person. And uh, his discourses for a year were about being a possibility thinker. And I walked away from that experience thinking, you know, I really need to look at the possibilities in my life day by day if I'm going to maintain my sobriety. As Albert Einstein said that uh, man possesses 2% of the uh, intelligence in the universe. What is the possibility that God exists in the other 98%? You know, I think about that and think about possibilities. And so we all talk about, uh, uh, about God or our higher power in our program. And uh, as we go down the road in recovery after we've done our formal work, what is our relationship with our higher power? Have we developed a personal relationship with that person or thing that we call a higher power? And how do we sustain that? So I think that's important. Um, so looking at our recovery and, and on a daily basis and saying, what are the possibilities for today? And understanding that, uh, perhaps that's part of your step two. Second question, can you be captivated by an idea to which the future belongs? Can you be captivated by an idea to which the future belongs? It was Victor Hugo that said, the most powerful thing in the world is an idea whose time has come. And you say, well, give me an example. June 10th, 1935, 87 years ago, a couple of drunks got together and they decided they didn't want to drink anymore. And, and how were they going to do that? And so William Wilson and, and uh, Dr. Robert Smith, better known as Bill W., and, and Dr. Bob got together and discovered that if they could support each other, they, uh, they would be able to stop drinking. But the, the question was, how do we do that and how do we maintain it? Um, I won't go into the great history of, of the early days of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Many of you probably know the history. But in any event... The idea that came out of that relationship was the 12 steps. This was an idea to which the future belongs. Here we are 87 years later in various disciplines, recovering from whatever your choice is. And we do that with the 12 steps. The 12 steps were an idea and their time came and we live in, in that uh, idea now. 12 steps are the basis of virtually any uh, addiction type, uh, recovery type program. And, and throughout the world, this is an idea that has spawned um, great things, the miracle of recovery. I think it was um, Patrick Carnes said that uh, eventually when we look back on the history of the world, one of the greatest things that ever happened in the world was the idea of the 12 steps. It's changed lives. And we who are in recovery know a great deal about that. Next question, do you have a wholesome, positive attitude toward life, toward your recovery, toward your family, toward your friendships? Having a wholesome, positive attitude. 
I like to be around people who are wholesome, who are positive. Where do I find that? You know, I always go to meetings and pan for gold. I love the experience, strength, and hope that people share in meetings. And I like to be around people who are succeeding in recovery. And what I want to know is, how do you do that? That's what I'm there to steal. And so I've, I've just met some tremendous people who are very successful people. Um, we don't measure that success in dollars and cents and the size of your house and where you live in the city and so on and so forth. Uh, we celebrate that miracle, if you will, of having a wholesome, positive attitude in recovery. Uh, let me tell you a brief story, and I'll try and do this uh, without much emotion. I'm, I'm an emotional person. I'm, I'm easy to tears. But let me give you an example. Um, several years ago, <clears throat> I attended the, uh, the high school graduation ceremony for my daughter. And uh, her cousin, my niece, uh, also graduated at the same time. So we were in uh, a building known as the uh, Jubilee Auditorium here in Calgary. It seats about 7,000 people. And so th this particular high school, <clears throat> excuse me, was a big one. So this is a big production uh, of doing the, the grad thing. Probably you've been to a few of them. And as you know, they call out the name. Somebody trots across the stage, picks up the scroll and away they go. And often they do it alphabetically. And so uh, my niece's name began with an M. And as you know, my last name begins with an N. So we were quite a ways down the list. And the thing that was interesting Maybe you know from your own graduation or the ones that you've been to. You can always tell who's popular. You can tell who the jocks are. You can tell who the, the good-looking gals are because those are the ones that get the whistles and the hoots and the shouts. And, you know, if you're an average type guy, you get the polite clap as you go across the, across the stage. And so as we're uh, sitting there and, and, uh, and watching the events, uh, they, they called out a name. This is where it gets emotional for me. That building, and then the people just jumped up and shouted and roared, and there was confetti going everywhere. And I thought, wow, I've got to see who this person is. I stood up to see what was going on. There was a girl in a wheelchair who has cerebral palsy. She was told that she would never graduate from school. And yet here she was going across the stage to, to pick up her graduation scroll. I talked to my daughter a little bit about her afterwards. My daughter was in uh, a peer leadership program at school. And uh, this particular girl with cerebral palsy was one that my daughter had worked with a little bit in, in school. And she said, dad, you know, this girl uh, begins her day with a, a new horizon, a new challenge a new beginning. And those are things that are not easy for her. A new horizon, a new challenge, a new beginning. Do we in recovery start our day that way? Do we have a new horizon for each day? Do we face a new challenge? And will we have a new beginning in recovery? Even when we're years down the road in our recovery, do we keep it fresh? Um, I live in an apartment building. There's a lady in this building who has cerebral palsy. She walks with a walker and has difficulty with her legs, but she can walk. And I'm always amazed at the tenacity of will that this woman has each and every day. Uh, my apartment overlooks a, a huge a patio and we have flower beds and we have gardening boxes and 
she's out there every day working on on the box, you know, and it would be so easy for her to just kind of hang around her apartment and say, wow, you know, I'm, I'm defeated. I, I just can't do this. And so I, I uh, just by watching her out on the patio, I, I take courage in, in her new horizon, her new challenge and her new beginning every day. And, and I'm blessed as I do that. Another question, do you have a self fit to live with, fit for yourself to know? I don't know about you, but back in the day when I was an addict, some people might have questioned that. Did I have a self fit to live with, fit for myself to know? You know, addiction is the, the art of escape. What did we escape from back in the day? It's probably been many and, and varied and, you know, and we do step forward and we look at our character defects and the things that have happened, what were we running from? You know, more often we were running from, from fear and a, and a difficult life and we just didn't know how to cope and how to manage. And so um, our addiction became the art of our escape. So one of the questions I like to ask myself today, even many years down the road after recovery, who am I today? Am I still that recovering, grateful, recovering sex addict? Am I still using step 12 to carry the message? Am I still promoting the 12-step program? Am I still reaching out to help the addict who still suffers? Well, you know, I could sit at home because I'm retired. I could contemplate the lint in my belly button and say, I'm sober today, so <laughs> I'll skip down the yellow brick road singing Kumbaya. But, you know, I, I have something to, to give. I have to pay it forward. And I'm so grateful to be able to do that. And so each day I ask myself the question, do I have a self fit to live with, fit for myself to know? I'm couched in recovery. I believe I am. And I hope that uh, wish is true for you as well. Let me ask you the last question here. Do you have a philosophy fit to live by? What is your personal philosophy? Do you have a philosophy fit to live by? You know, we say, yeah, hey, I'm recovering. I'm in so-and-so program and I'm, I'm sober today. And, and so I, I think I have a good philosophy. Um, I'm one of those people that says, excuse me, sobriety is the number of days that we've been able to chain together where we haven't acted out in our outer circle or uh, in the things that we've done in the past. And so... I often say to my sponsees, tell me about the quality of your recovery. The quality of your recovery. How does it look each day? And do you have a personal philosophy, one that's fit to live with and one that's fit to live by? We can work on that constantly in, in the days of our recovery, in, in just having that philosophy and, and refining it. I'm, I'm big on 10-4, ten, ten good buddy. <laughs> step 10 and step 4. I know my character defects, and, you know, we, we talk in the steps about having uh, the God of our understanding take those character defects away. And so I always question in meetings, does God actually take those away? I've still got mine. They still pop up periodically. But now I have a plan. I know what to do. I have a relapse prevention plan or a self-management plan. Have you ever developed one of those for yourself? It's kind of interesting because some of the people I worked with over the years, uh, this is a value added thing that I do as a sponsor. I have them develop a self-management plan. 
And some of my guys, in fact, have uh, written down some brief notes, put it on a card and put it in their wallet. You know, when the poop hits the fan, what do you do? Well, do you know what to do when somebody hollers fire? Get out of the building. When you're triggered, get out of the building. Somebody hollered fire. So there's a whole plan of things that can happen from there that will help to keep you sober. And I think most of you probably know in, in part what that plan looks like. So having a philosophy, you know, my, my philosophy is that I am able to deal with my sexual addiction if I will dedicate myself, if I am committed to the program, if I work the steps, if I stay in touch with my sponsor, I have two of them. Here I am, years and years later, I still have two sponsors. I still reach out to them. We've got some guys in the room today who are uh, some of my sponsees. I can't see your names and faces, but I know you're there. And, uh, you know, these are guys that uh, I can reach out to. And I do at, at various times. I mean, as sober for as long as I've been sober, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that I will stay. So I have days. I have days when the poop hits the fan. I have days when I get up in the morning, I say, wow, I've got arthritis in my hips. And some days I'm in so much pain that, you know, I'm sure acting out would cure that for me. Uh, let me get the one click thing out here and we'll look at some pornography. <laughs> I, I'm sure that's the cure for arthritis. Uh, well, many years in recovery have told me that that's not the case. So uh, I've developed a philosophy that uh, that I think works for me, and, and I hope that works for you as well, that uh, you can do those things. So in the work that you do uh, beyond the 12 steps and in your daily life, be a possibility thinker. Be captivated by ideas. Have a wholesome, positive attitude. Have a self fit to live with, fit for yourself to know, and have a philosophy fit to live by. Let me close with this thought. It's from Edward Everett Hale. It says, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And what I can do, that I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. May you be blessed in your recovery and in the work that you do with yourself and with others. And, uh, I hope in some small way I've given you something to think about today as you work and, and progress in your recovery. Thank you for letting me share. Awesome. Thank you so much, Al. Really appreciate your share there. And I love those questions that you posed. And I'll have some questions for you based on those questions. But before we get to that, uh, um, I want to remind our live audience that um, if you have questions for Al, please type them in the Q&A link at the bottom of your Zoom window. Looks like two speech bubbles over the top of each other, and we'll get to those and ask him so that he can uh, share a little bit more of his experience, strength, and hope based on those questions. So, Al, before we move forward, tell us a little bit about your uh, primary recovery fellowship and how that helps you. You know, we aren't promoting, but we are sharing how that helps us in our own recovery and, and and please let us know how that works for you, if you wouldn't mind. Well, uh, <clears throat> my program of choice, of course, for recovering from sex addiction is Sex Addicts Anonymous. When I came into recovery, I did both Sexaholics Anonymous, SA, and I did uh, SAA as well, Sex, sex Addicts Anonymous. And uh, after about a year, my circumstances were such that SAA worked for me. So... Um, I have always said that a person needs to be in the program that works for them. 
And there's more than one way to recover from, from virtually any addiction. There are many programs out there. And so uh, I took the time to do some investigative work to see what the programs were about, what their philosophy was. And obviously, every program is based on the 12 steps. The approach may, may be a little bit different and may vary from program to program. But for me, SAA was the one that worked and, and the one that... Uh, that has been able to keep me sober. And so that's my, my home group. I am also, uh, my community of faith also has a recovery program. And uh, I'm in, very involved in that one as well. And uh, for me, after this many years, it's a maintenance program. But my friend, as sober as I have been, I still do two meetings a week. And that's what it takes to keep Al sober. I can't afford to skip them. So I'm very faithful in my meeting attendance. And that's a little bit about what I'm associated with. Excellent. Thank you so much. And thanks for sharing about, you know, what, what it takes to keep Al sober. I appreciate that. All right. We have a couple questions that have come in and uh, I've got some more. Keep it bringing those questions. Kevin asks, you often mention about the quality of one's recovery. Can you please elaborate on what you mean by that? Some days are literally one day at a time and others are easy. Quality. When, when I look at quality, I can say, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm not involved in my inner circle today. I'm not uh, doing the things that I shouldn't be doing. Uh, but what does my quality look like? In other words, where is my headspace at in any given day? Um, do I use the thoughts, feelings, and behavior cycle to analyze what's going on in my day? Um, if I'm having a tough day, have I reached out? And so... The quality of my recovery needs to be such that I have everything in place to ensure that I have a good day. Again, granted, not every day is going to be a good day, but I can work at making it better. The option or the choice is that if I don't choose to do that, if I don't reach out, if I don't give some serious thought to some prayer and meditation, if I don't involve uh, my higher power, I'm at risk of acting out. And um, my friend's been there, done that. Um, you know, um, Justin, you mentioned earlier that I, I took a sabbatical and, <laughs> excuse me, and, and took a vacation away from recovery for some of the people on this call today who know me. Um, I've been in recovery for three years. Um, I took that sabbatical, went out there, did some field research. And so I woke up one morning and discovered that I, as I looked out my bedroom window, that my bedroom window had bars on it. So I was a guest of the federal government for six years. So I had three hots and a cot. And, you know, if that isn't a wake up call, I don't know what is. And so I said to myself, you know, Al, what is the quality of your life? Your addiction has brought you to prison. Uh, how much lower can you go? Well, I probably could have committed suicide, but I didn't. And so I'm, I'm here today to say the program works. There is great quality to the things that we do if we will simply incorporate the 12 steps and work them. Thank you. I, and thanks for sharing a little bit more of that, of your experience there. Um, uh, appreciate your uh, willingness to share that. All right. Another question came in from Sam. Sam asks, Al, how often do you go back through all 12 steps in sequence or formally? Well, one of the great things about working with sponsees is that I'm always involved in the 12 steps and they're all at various stages. Uh, I'm a, a big believer of A Gentle Path Through the 12 Steps. It's a book, obviously, for any addiction at all, written by uh, Patrick Carnes, of whom I'm a, a great fan. 
And uh, <clears throat> so all of my sponsees work in that book. So depending on where they are, I'm working along with them. In terms of my own personal recovery, I like to review them periodically. I still have my original copy of A Gentle Path Through the 12 Steps that I worked. And I like to look at it periodically to see what my answers were and if they're still valid or if there's things that I need to change. So um, very definitely there are aspects of the 12 steps that I still personally work because I need to. That's how I stay sober. Thank you. And, and and as you mention resources and different things, I make note of those resources and I put them in the show notes of the podcast so that if anybody has interest, they can go look those up. So um, thank you for sharing those resources. And uh, a question I have for you from, from your share, I loved those questions that you posted or that you posed. Um, one of them being, um, ca- being captivated by an idea to which the future belongs. Al, do you currently have one of those ideas that you are captivated by that you are working towards in your own life? I, I, I do. I'm, I'm captivated, captivated by the possibility and the idea that there is life beyond recovery and deciding what that is and what it looks like is important to me. I, I realize that I can't stay put in one place. I, I can't, uh, as my mother says, if you rest, you rust. So I, I can't afford to, to do that. I need to keep moving my recovery ahead. So um, the idea that um, I, I can make myself as available as possible, um, I think keeps my recovery moving forward. Um, periodically, I'll, I'll get an email from uh, the good folks at Sex, Sex, uh, Sex Addicts Anonymous, and it'll talk about a new group that's being formed, and I'll get involved. And so, for instance, I'm, I'm involved uh, out of Metro DC in, in a sponsors roundtable. It's a gathering of sponsors who discuss how we handle a, a particular step with our sponsees. And so uh, I'm involved in that uh, for some time they're, they're not doing it now, but other, out of Southern California, they were doing uh, some speaker meetings that were tremendously powerful. And I participated in those. Uh, the International Communications Committee of, of Sex Addicts Anonymous is another committee that uh, I'm not involved in now, but have been for several years to push things ahead. I, I think that, um, you know, recovery programs um, Relatively speaking, some of them are fairly new. I think Sex Addicts Anonymous has been around since 1967, but it's an idea to which I was captivated. Hey, I can get over this sex addiction, and here's how I can do it. Here's a pro- here, hey, I can go to a meeting. I can hear people. You know, if you're an alcoholic, as I was at one point in time, I was a boat drinker, so I wasn't a fall down brown bag downtown guy, but nevertheless, I had a problem with drinking, so I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. So. You know, when you have that problem, you can kind of put your arm around your buddy and say, oh, you know, let's go and get blasted. But when you're a sex addict, you know, can you put your arm around your buddy and say, I want to come to my house and look at kitty porn? You know, you, so ours is, you know, ours, we who are sex addicts, it's a very secret addiction, very, very much so. I mean, we just don't share that kind of information. Here's an idea. Go to a meeting and share your stuff. You know, I was surprised. People hugged me. People asked for my phone number. People said, keep coming back. They didn't take me out and lynch me in the tree in front of the church. 
So, you know, here's an idea to which I have been captivated, and that's the recovery program that uh, that I work in. And as I say, I'm, I'm currently doing maintenance programs with our community of faith, and those two are an idea. We're in the process of revising the manual for that program, and I, I was uh, very grateful to be a participant in that. And so the the idea, again, is re-blossoming out of this program that the church has. And so, yeah. I like new ideas. Excellent. Thank you for sharing those. So, um, yeah, you mentioned that uh, you've been sober uh, from alcohol since 1974. What are the similarities and differences maybe of, of the uh, programs you worked back then in AA and how you do things now and have over the last you know handful of years that you've been doing things in SAA and in ARP? Sorry, I had a bit of trouble hearing the end of that. Oh, so yeah, I apologize. So the end of it was, what What are some of the similarities and differences between the program you worked in AA and the program you work now or have worked over the last several years in SAA and uh, in ARP? Um, I, I don't know that there's a lot of differences in them. I mean, obviously, we're dealing with... Uh, with um, a different addiction. And I have always said this, that uh, it, it doesn't matter what the addiction is. The, the acting out behaviors are an outward manifestation of an inner problem. And it's the inner problem that we have to deal with. And I, I kind of remember in AA, you know, they, they jokingly say, uh, why isn't one of the 12 steps? So I, I, I wasn't so sure that I needed to know why I was drinking, but in, in fact, you know, I, I did. So it's interesting when I came into recovery as a recovering sex addict and discovered that in step four, answering the question why, you know, we do step one, then we get to step four and say, why did I do these things? You know, Dr. Phil says, what were you thinking? And I, I said that to myself, what were you thinking? So, you know, it was a little bit different. And, I, and of course, my experience was such that I really needed to get very serious um, about my recovery work now. But the 12 steps are the 12 steps, and I think it depends on how prepared we are and how we approach it. Um, and definitely, I'm, I'm huge on sponsors. It really depends on having a, a really good sponsor. And I have always said, don't look for a sponsor, listen for one. And I've been blessed over the years. My, my father was my longest sponsor. He's now since passed, and, and I have other sponsors. I have a, a program sponsor and a spiritual sponsor. My spiritual sponsor deals with my spirituality and and the the inner me, the inner child, so to speak. And so I'm I'm grateful to have still a sponsor. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I uh, I don't know whether Steve's on the call today. I think he is, but uh, I, I like one of one of one of his Steveisms. He said it takes as long to walk out of the forest as it did to walk in. So. Yeah, lots of work. The, the programs are obviously very similar. Um, the 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 only difference is, you know, what uh, what are you recovering from today? Yeah, thank you for sharing that. You you just shared something that I that like piqued my interest. You said your father, your actual father, was your sponsor for a long time. How did that work out with a family member being your sponsor? Is that <laughs> something you would recommend to to most people? I'll try and give you the thumbnail here. Um, I was born during the Second World War. My father was in the Navy during the Second World War. When he came home at the end of the war, my parents divorced. Things just didn't work out while he was gone. And, and um, <clears throat> so I've, I've heard my mother's, both my parents have passed, but I've heard my mother's story and I've heard my dad's story and somewhere in between lies the truth sort of thing, you know. 
But uh, in any event, uh, my parents divorced when I was two. My dad went on to uh, Vancouver, remarried, had a family. And so uh, I never did have any contact with him. In my teen years, I wrote to him a couple of times because I knew where he worked and I didn't get any response. So I just assumed that, uh, you know, either he's gotten on with his life or he just doesn't want to have anything to do with this kid that he never knew anyway, because he was busy on the East Coast serving on Corvettes. So um, I didn't pursue it much from there. And I'm, I'm grateful to my mother because my mother did not prejudice me. Um, you know, we, we talked in generalities over the years about what had happened. So I'm 30 years old. I'm remarried for the second time. My daughter has just been born. And I got a letter in the mail, a very brief letter that said, hi, I'm your dad. I don't know whether you want to have anything to do with me or not, but here's my phone number and here's my address. Well. Again, I'll try not to be emotional. I jumped on that one. I wanted to know my dad so badly. And so I gave him a call. So as things unfolded and I got to know him and he lived in in BC. And of course, I'm here in Alberta. So uh, we arranged to get together to do a little bit of camping and to get to know each other. And he said, you know, Al, when I wrote that letter to you, he said, I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, I was such a serious alcoholic that I couldn't drive to 7-Eleven with, without a drink between my knees. And so he said, when I wrote the letter, I was doing step eight. And my sponsor said to me, uh, Chess, you, you've got a son out there that you've ignored for 30 years. Do you think you owe him an amend? So, so he wrote the letter and, and the rest was history. And so as I got to know my dad, I said, you know, dad, I, I think I have a problem. Uh, I, can you help me with it? My father was Mr. AA in BC, you know, he, for a couple of years, he was the, the whatever from, from the New York office. He went to all the roundups. He was a frequent speaker and, and just a great all around guy. So um, more times than not, he said, Al, don't take yourself too damn seriously. <laughs> so, so that worked out really well. And he was my sponsor until he passed. And, and, uh, then, you know, I, I came up with a new sponsor, and that's another story probably for another day. <laughs> Very good. But so, so on that note, would you recommend that somebody would typically seek out the sponsor from a family member, like father or spouse or anything like that? Is that something you would ever recommend? Well, you know, I suppose there's some pros and cons to it. Um you know, when you when you look for a sponsor and, and you listen for a sponsor, you might be getting the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, or the chancellor from the university. Who knows? You know, uh, we can only go on the basis of the experience that our our sponsor has had. And so, choosing a sponsor, uh, I think, needs to be done with a great deal of caution. And um, I think we've all probably gotten into that situation where we think, oh, gosh, I can't fire a sponsor. I can't change sponsors. I have to be loyal. I have to be faithful. Um, And I've always said, you know, hey, we're we're talking my sobriety here. (laughs) I need somebody that can support me, that can mentor me, that can guide me. I've always said that, you know, recovery is like giving instructions to a blind guy in a minefield. And so I need all the help I can get to get through uh, my addiction. Uh, when it comes to being a family member, I appreciate that I hadn't known my father for 30 years. And so when we first met, he was a stranger to me. I knew nothing about him. And, and so as time progressed, obviously, we, we got to know each other. Um, and so because we lived in two different provinces, we'd get together at least once a year. 
uh, spend some time camping. Uh, he'd bring my step, my, uh, my stepmother and I'd bring my wife and my daughter and, and we'd, uh, we'd have a good time together. And through the course of that time that we were camping together, my father and I would take time to some alone time to kind of bond as, as father and son and as sponsor and sponsee. So, um, my, my personal, to answer your question, that's a long answer, isn't it? To answer your question, <laughs> I do go on, just ask my friends. <laughs> um, I, I think we have to be careful about who we select as a sponsor. I think that if a family member is appropriate, go for it. I'm more inclined to say, no, we need somebody who's not invested and attached in our personal lives so that they can be objective. And I think, <clears throat> excuse me, that's one of the big things about being a sponsor. A sponsor has to be objective in dealing uh, with, with helping you to get through your recovery. So um, it's, it's not impossible. In my case, it happened until my father passed, but uh, you know, um, it's, it's certainly worth considering um, on, you know, is this a good thing or is it not? Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I think I uh, tend to, to, follow that same thinking that uh, an immediate family member may not be the best choice because of that objectivity um, and being able to call me on my garbage when I'm being dishonest without, you know, worrying about, yeah. you know, what does this I, I do to our relationship? I was going to say, I don't know about you, but probably most of my family and friends were my enablers and codependents. They're the people that looked the other way when I was doing my stuff. They didn't uh, absolutely. know what I was doing, but they had an idea. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's I think there's some truth to that. Very good. I love how you brought up this story with the young woman who graduated high school and the new the, you called it the new horizon, new challenge and new beginning each day. Um, how do you keep that fresh? I mean, I talked to some people who after oh a year or after five years or someone after 15 or 20 years, and you know, recovery is just getting stale. It's the same old thing over and over again. How do you keep that new horizon, that new uh, challenge and that new beginning fresh for you? Well, you know, I just gave you five questions on how I do that. <laughs> but uh, seriously, you know, I'm, I'm still a possibility thinker. One of the things that saves me from going back is when I can uh, you know, perhaps be triggered or something pops up on TV, I can, can take that moment and say, what are the possibilities here? I can choose to act or I can choose to react. Uh, each of us will have, you know, our, our technique of dealing with issues when we're, we're triggered so that we, we don't go back. One of the things I like to look at is uh, telling myself, whoa, wait a minute, what are the possibilities here? I have some choices. What is the choice that I'll make today? So uh, it, it takes a while to kind of absorb this concept of being a possibility thinker. But it's amazing when you can get your head wrapped around it, where you just take that, you know, we, we talk about addiction. There's that split second when we could make the decision not to act out. And so being a possibility thinker, it's that same thing. I mean, there are still things out there that are, that are triggering for me. I have a plan. I know how to handle them now, which is different. Before I used to say, hey, in for a penny, in for a pound. But uh, it's different now. So I have that split second when I, when I can be a possibility thinker and say, what are the possibilities here? The possibility is that I can make a choice. I can go back or I can maintain my recovery. What's the choice going to be? 
Yeah. Thank you so much. And you did, you mentioned that self-management plan, that uh, uh, relapse prevention plan. Do you use any sort of uh, template or anything like that in helping others develop that? Or is that just something you say, Hey, let's ask some questions and answer some questions. Talk, walk us through that process just a little bit, if you don't mind. <laughs> well, let me tell you some secrets here. Um, I have three university degrees, one of which is a master's. My undergraduate degree is in behavioral psychology. So during the course of my, my six years as a guest of the government, of course, there, there are lots of programs available. <clears throat> they sent me off to the regional psychiatric center in the next province. And, and um, I, I'm not crazy. I've been tested. So <laughs> I'm not obsessive. I don't have obsessive compulsive disorder, but I do. I am OC. I've been tested. But anyway, long story short, uh, I was in a high intensity sex offender program while I was there. It's all built around cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's my thing. That's my wheelhouse is cognitive behavioral therapy. So while I was there, I was there for eight months. Uh, the program was eight hours a day, five days a week. Morning was uh, group therapy. Afternoon was programs. And so one of the things that I had to develop while I was there was a self-management plan that said, okay, when you get out of prison, I mean, you've committed a crime here, um, a sexual crime. What, what is your plan? How are you going to stay away from that stuff? So I had to flesh out a plan. And... Um, so many of us, of course, call it a relapse prevention plan. I call it a self-management plan. In other words, how do I manage myself from day to day so that I make sure that I don't go back? And so do I have a template? Well, what I do share with my sponsees is that I have my own personal self-management plan. And I, I, I haven't developed a, a, a generic kind of, you know, fill in the blanks type thing that I can send out to people, but I do send a copy of mine and I say, you know, hey, hey, I'm putting it out here. This is my stuff. You know, this is how I manage my life. So you use that template and, and start filling it in with what works for you. So there, there's kind of some value added exercises that I give my sponsees. One is values, attitudes, and beliefs. And, um, you know, I, I, part of having a philosophy uh, fit fit for yourself, fit for yourself to know, and a philosophy fit to live by. What are your values, attitudes, and beliefs? I had them before I, came a sec before I became an alcoholic or before I became a, a sex addict. What happened to my values, attitudes, and beliefs? Well, it's a paper and pencil exercise, and, and I, I write out my values, my attitudes, and my beliefs. And, and so, you know, you can call it stinking thinking if you like, but... <laughs> Then the question becomes, okay, here I am in recovery. I've been in recovery for a while. Let's revisit this. Let's look at my values, attitudes, and beliefs. What are they now? What do I value most in life? What do I believe? What is my attitude about any given thing? And it's a good thing, like I say, to, to write it out and, and uh, keep it, you know, wherever. And it's a good thing to revisit. So it's it's one of the exercises that I, I give my sponsees as well. I give them the self-management plan, uh, values, attitudes, and beliefs. Thoughts, feelings, and behaviors is another one that I'm big on. It's all cognitive behavioral therapy. And we've heard it probably under a myriad of different labels in recovery. We've probably heard people talk about it. But uh, I, I stole them all. I, I make no apology for plagiarizing anything at all. Uh, anybody that's on my morning blogs know that I do that. So uh, I, I, I'm a thief of good ideas. 
And so uh, those are the things that I are value added when I work with sponsees. It's in addition to the the work that they do in the general path. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. All right. We have another question that came in from our audience. This is from Ryan. Ryan says, Al, thank you for sharing your experience, faith, and hope. On the subjects of sponsors, what would you recommend doing to help encourage members in a fellowship such as ARP or any other fellowship, maybe individual meeting that does not historically encourage formal sponsorship to look for and listen for a sponsor without sounding like you are full of yourself or like you want to shove it down their throats? <laughs> okay. Well, in the uh, as I mentioned in my community of faith, we have a recovery program. Um, one of the shifts that's being made in the program as they revise it is great emphasis now on having a sponsor. Just virtually everything in that program, and it's based on the 12 steps, but uh, almost at every turn, they talk about a sponsor, a sponsor, a sponsor. And so I'm, I'm big on sponsors. Um, I say, you know, if, if you're somebody in recovery and you're doing this on your own, you're some, somewhat akin to the guy that goes to court and represents himself. He has a fool for a client. So, <laughs> you know, we, we really need the experience of, of others to help us get through this program. And so listening for a sponsor, listen for somebody who has something that you want, something that you think you need, something that you, you say, to, you know, the penny drops and you say, wow, this guy's talking about me. He's talking about the stuff that I've done. Maybe he's got some ideas about how I can overcome this. So I think it's important to uh, to uh, definitely listen for a sponsor. Now, uh, refresh my memory. Did I miss the gist of something there? I think I did. So the last part was uh, bringing that up uh, without sounding like you're full of yourself or like you want to shove it down their throats, shove the idea of sponsorship uh, down their throats. Oh, listen, if you're in recovery and you haven't learned humility... <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, um, I, I, I love to answer questions. You know, I, I'm, I'm not a preachy kind of guy that says you should, you should have, would have, could have, you should, you know, uh, that's not my style. I, I'm there to put my arm around somebody and say, my friend, how can I help? And I, you know, speaking for, I'm a Sunday go to meeting guy, so I'm going to talk about the compassion of the Savior for a second. I have great compassion for people who are struggling with addiction, whatever that addiction looks like. Great compassion, because I've been there. I've done that. Hey, I've done stuff in sex addiction that would curl your hair. A lot of people, you know, when they recover from sex addiction, pornography and masturbation are, are the entry level things. And, and when I first uh, interview somebody and, then, and they say, well, I'm, I'm struggling with pornography. And, and, and I say, well, how about masturbation? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Um, so I know where there's smoke, there's fire, you know, there's, there's something else going on. And uh, that was the case for me. I think about the only thing that I haven't done in sex addiction is the rubber rooms and whips and chains. I, I've had a mistress, I belong to a swingers club, I, you know, I've, I've done the gamut of things in there. And so uh, listening for somebody who has something that I want is incredibly important. There's lots of people out there that have great experience, great strength, great hope, but somebody who has something that I want is important. And so I need to know what my, 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 uh, my wants are up front. 
Great. Thank you so much. So before we wrap this up, Al, do you have any final words of wisdom that you'd like to share with us in the light and the audience out here that will be listening? Have you got another hour? <laughs> We've got some time. We got a five minutes. What do you got? No, I'm pulling your leg. Yeah. Um, words of wisdom. I, I just, you know, there's so many directions that somebody can go with that kind of a question. Um, I, I just hope, you know, my, I, I, I hope and pray for the person who's trying to find recovery every day. Um, there was a period of, uh, of five years that um, uh, there's a big, it's a historical building in downtown Calgary. It's uh, Central United Church, big old sandstone building. And um, it's, it's not my particular face, but in any event, uh, in the evenings, they have uh, what they call a life recovery service. And basically, it's an AA meeting with, uh, you know, some good old singing involved and a bit of scripture here and there and sometimes communion and, and other things. And so the, because it's a, a, an inner city ministry, they, they minister to the, the homeless and the addicted. Uh, let me tell you, these are the kinds of people back in the day. I, I was a middle-class snob. I was a professional back in the day. The, these folks downtown were people, you know, I wouldn't pee on their head if their hair was on fire. So I, I, <laughs> I was part of another program, and they said, hey, you know, come on down to Central United. We think maybe uh, you might enjoy the meetings that are being had there. And so I, I did that. I wound up being part of the prayer team. So after the meeting, uh, I and my team, there were three of us, uh, we'd go to a side sanctuary and we would sit and talk and pray with, and this is emotional too, and, and pray for these people who are out on the street. Um, Calgary is a city of 1.4 million people. We, we have a large homeless problem in this city. I have come to love and appreciate those people because some of the things that they are struggling with are absolutely unbelievable. And by and large, they're all addicted either to alcohol or drugs particularly. And uh, some of them are just uh, struggling with, with just eking out an existence from day to day. So I, I gained a great appreciation for the blessings that I have, that I have food in my stomach. I have a roof over my head. I, I have a place to sleep, and that I truly, wow, <laughs> I truly am blessed in recovery. I really am, you know. I just, I, I count my blessings every day that um, my experience, even up until recently, I've had the experience where some people, either in word or in deed, uh, in essence said, Al, I believe in you. I know you can do this. And as I think about it, isn't that what we need in recovery? We need somebody to walk beside us to say, you know, I know you can do this. I believe in you. And that's what I really wanted was somebody to believe in me. And that's what so many people on the street are hoping. You know, I, I can't buy them a car. I can't buy them a condo. I, I can buy them a meal. But, um, giving them a little bit of hope and uh, telling them that I believe in them. Somebody believed in me and I recovered. 
Somebody believed in me and I got out of prison. Somebody believed in me and I got on with my life. And so I've become a, a useful, productive member of society who has something to give. So I traded addictions. I'm, I'm not a sex addict anymore. My new addiction is recovery. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Al. Uh, um, we had two last second questions come in, and I think they're both pretty quick ones. So I'm going to ask them. Um, first one is from Ben. If I'm considering switching sponsors, should I get another sponsor first believe, before leaving the first one? There's a couple of directions you can go on that one. Uh, just let me quickly say that if you're, if you're going to change, uh, a, a true sponsor should have uh, no problem, should, should not uh, um, you know, be offended by your choice. They, they realize that your needs come first. And I always say that the person with the greatest need comes first. That's me. I'm the addict. I have needs. And so um, a true sponsor would not be offended if you're going to change uh, sponsors. I would recommend that uh, where possible, you have a sponsor in place because, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but my addiction doesn't take a day off. Um, I personally cannot be without guidance. I mean, I, I have some great friends in recovery. I have uh, one of my sponsees is uh, about 10 years now sober. Get a text message from him every morning. Have done for 10 years. We te still text each other. Uh, one of my guys I know is on the call today. Uh, we're looking at about five years down the road. He's my best friend. When I'm in trouble, I can reach out. I, I don't, you know, I don't discern, you know, is he a sponsor? Is he a sponsor? What is he? He's a friend in recovery, somebody I can talk to. And I think that's the key that we need to reach out. And in terms of changing sponsors, look after yourself first. Thank you for sharing that. I, I think that's some wise, wise words there. All right. The last question is uh, from Mary. Mary says, what's the best treatment center for sex addiction? I don't know if this is something you have any experience in or expertise in, but uh, that's the question for you. <laughs> well, there's lots of them around. Uh, the best one, my recommendation, I've already said it. I'm a big fan of Patrick Carnes. He has the Meadows. Uh, it's pricey. Um the Meadows, um, Patrick's pretty much retired now, but his daughter is Stephanie Card, and she's a PhD. Um, she uh, wrote a book called Mending a Shattered Heart. Um, if anybody wants to uh, know what they did to somebody else, read Mending a Shattered Heart. It's the story from the other side of the fence. And I'll tell you, it's one of its recommended reading from my sponsees because we, you know, we say, oh, yeah, well, we, we've harmed some people describe that, read the book, and you'll find out what harm looks like. You'll find out that the, the biggest thing is the word betrayal. It's really interesting. And, and I've heard stories from, from the other side of the fence where um, spouses and others have talked about that sense of betrayal by the, that came as a result of our addiction. So um, yeah, Mending a Shattered Heart is a great book. But in any event, um, the Meadows. But like I say, there are lots of programs out there. Um, just one quick thought. Uh, people who are going to therapists uh, are wanting to know, you know, how should I go to see a therapist? My recommendation is twofold. Number one, ask your therapist if they're a recovering addict. 
People say, oh, I can't ask that of a therapist. Well, yes, you can. You're paying the bill. You're hiring the professional to work for you. You want to know if he's, he or she is a recovering addict because do they know what they're talking about or do they have a head full of book knowledge? The other one in my case, for, certainly for sex addiction, I, I ask them, are you um, a CSAT, certified sex addiction therapist, CSAT? And uh, that's important. I mean, when, when the addicted speak to the non-addicted, they're speaking a foreign language. I want to talk to somebody that knows what I'm talking about. And I'm footing the bill. So um, Patrick Carnes probably wouldn't admit to this, but if you are involved in SAA and you read the Green Book, the first story in the Green Book is 11 pages long. It's Patrick's story. He also was a sex addict. That's one of the reasons why he started SAA. So um, I like hanging around with recovering sex addicts because that's my thing. I mean, you know, I can send you down to Clarisol, south of Calgary here, if you want to recover from alcohol. There's, there's lots of places around. Fresh Start is right in Calgary. It's a 30-bed treatment facility. So, But uh, in terms of sex addiction, the meadows, if you can afford it. Uh, Tiger Woods went there. Um, last, I understood, it's about 50 grand U.S. It's a two-month inpatient program. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that. And like I said, those resources that you're mentioning, I will put in the show notes of the of the podcast meeting. So anybody who's listening in podcast will be able to go in there and find those uh, links and that information. Thank you again, Al. That was a great RICO 12 weekly speaker meeting for all addicts and those wanting to learn more about addiction and the recovery therefrom. If we didn't get to your questions or if you have other questions, please go to Rico12.com and join in our community there on the website. And we also have a private Facebook group and you can ask and answer questions there uh, that may come up from these meetings. I invite the audience to come back next week. If you have not yet rated and reviewed the podcast and Apple podcast, please go do so now. It's a great way to, to work your 12th step and help us work our 12th step in sharing this message with others. Next week, we will be hearing from Lids G, whose topic will be, we do recover from violence and are able to laugh again. Lids has been on RICO 12 once before and back in meeting number 72, and I look forward to hearing from her again next week. Now, let's launch off into the next, the rest of our day with the we version of the serenity prayer that Al has chosen. Go ahead, Al. Thank you. Who do we believe in? God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Keep coming back and keep trudging this happy road with me. Work it. You are worth it. Despite the rough turn
survive the storms and walk through wind and rain. Still standing, I will fight the good fight. Still searching for glimmers of light. Feet still on the ground. I can still be found. Standing still. Seal that I am 